optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Why, hello, you sexy little minxes. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of the Tim Ferriss Show, where it is usually my job to deconstruct world-class performers of various types. This episode is going to be a little bit different, and it is by request. You have asked for an episode on accelerated learning, on education, on mentors, my past mentors, all of these things. And it is going to all be covered in the following conversation between yours truly and Charles Best, who is the founder and CEO of DonorsChoose.org, one of my favorite companies, profit or nonprofit companies in the world. And it took place at South by Southwest EDU with an audience of primarily educators and administrators. So an unusual audience for me, but a very exciting audience. And as some context, Charles Best, who is he? Well, we met in high school as wrestling partners of all things, and we'll talk about that. But he has since done many, many things, including launching DonorsChoose.org in 2000 at a Bronx public high school where he taught history for five years. Now, flash forward to today, what are we looking at? DonorsChoose.org is one of Oprah Winfrey's ultimate favorite things. It has been on the cover of Fast Company as one of the 50 most innovative companies in the world, the first time a charity has ever received such recognition. And 
teachers at more than 70% of all the public schools in America have used DonorsChoose.org to create classroom project requests. And you should absolutely check this company out. It is lean. It is run as well as anything out there. But the conversation itself focuses on topics that you can apply to your own lives in terms of learning things faster. It talks about teaching, good teaching, bad teaching, tough love, the value thereof, and many, many different things. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with the one and only Charles Best. All right, packed house, this is awesome. So Tim is an old and dear friend of mine. We went to high school together. We were on the wrestling team together. So uh, this is actually a fireside chat, not just a, a euphemism for an informal, warm conversation. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to be asking you some questions. We've got a lot of teachers in the audience, so why don't we kick it off by, uh, let me ask you, tell us about a teacher or two who made a really big difference in your life. So I'll start with just thanking everybody in the audience. You guys are doing really important work. So education has played a huge role. Thank you, guys. In my life, there are so many different inflection points. I'll mention two who come to mind. The first is Mrs. Vinsky, who has sadly passed, but she was my first grade teacher, public school in Long Island. And I had refused to learn the alphabet up to that point. I'd been made to eat soap as a result, which I don't recommend. And I wouldn't survive first grade is what, what my mother had been told. So Mrs. Vinsky took me aside and she said, Tim, if you learn the alphabet, you'll be able to read any book you want. And if you can read books, you can learn anything that you want. And I was like, why didn't anybody tell me? So, uh, and on top of that, she discovered something which was competition really motivates me. So she had a, a, a long paper line up on the wall. It went the entire length of the classroom and each student had a race car. And based on the number of books you read and completed, that race car moved towards the finish line. And for whatever reason, that is really what drove me to consume as many books as possible. So that's a Mrs. Vinsky, number one. And then flashing forward, so a familiar name for both of us, would be John Buxton. So it's very strange for me to say his first name because I would never dare. Uh, so Mr. B, Mr. Buxton was our wrestling coach, but he was also a teacher. He was also involved with the administration and I believe the endowment. And he provided a very unique form of tough love in the wrestling room that was extremely critical to me, I think, in that sort of 10th grade, 11th grade period in particular. So looking back, uh, I think almost everyone on that team has done some really amazing things, and they all look back and would mention Mr. Buxton. So I would say those, those two immediately come to mind. Totally. Yeah, Mr. Buxton is the teacher who made me want to be a teacher. And so if not for Mr. Buxton, I think there'd be no DonorsChoose.org. Well, when you were on Oprah, you brought up Mr. Buxton. That's right. That's I mean, right. he was one of the teachers, one of the, the seminal sort of pivotal figures in your life that you brought up. So Yeah. Actually, yeah. I remember thinking if anyone ever looked up to me the way that I looked up to Mr. Buxton, I would have done my share and, and knew, yeah. knew I wanted to be a teacher. So we're going to be talking about accelerated learning and, and your insights for um, learning more quickly and more deeply. Let's start with just your, your framework mm -hmm. for how someone can learn more quickly and more deeply. So there, the general framework that I use was really pieced together over many years via trial and error. I think there's some applications in the classroom, certainly, but I can pull from my, my personal experience. So the general acronym is DIS, 
with, <laughs> you leave the I out, it's, you'll, you'll get there, don't worry. So D and then three S's, that's the framework. And it, it refers to step one, deconstruction. And the order is very important. So deconstruction is really taking a skill, learn a language, learn to swim, whatever it might be, and breaking it into the smallest Lego pieces possible. So for instance, I didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s. This is very embarrassing as someone who grew up on Long Island. Granted, rat tail, fine, whatever. We can talk about that later. But I was deathly afraid of the water and had some near drowning incidents. I tried to take courses and take lessons. None of it worked until I was introduced to something called total immersion. And what total immersion did that no other method did for me, at least, was break down the constituent pieces. And so it wouldn't put me in the water to, say, get on a kickboard right away, because there are a bunch of issues with that. I said, all right, let's, let's separate breathing. Let's separate proper body position for hydrodynamics. Then you take out kicking, so that's a separate piece, then upper body movements, and then you order them in the least threatening way. So breathing isn't even a piece of it. For the first, say, day or two, you would just focus on uh, standing in a four-foot deep pool and kicking off the side and practicing your streamlined position. So deconstruction is step number one. The next is selection. And selection, in effect, you're using the 80-20 principle or Pareto's law to answer the question, what 20% of those Lego, block, Lego blocks deliver 80% of the results or more than I'm looking for. And there are certain places where this is really, really profound in language learning, for instance. So I thought I was bad at language learning up until the point that I transferred to the school where we met, uh, St. Paul's, and that's a whole separate story, and had the chance to study with Mr. Shimano in Japanese. Because I figured, well, if I'm going to be terrible at Spanish, I might as well be terrible at a different language with my friends who are actually in the class. And uh, in, in, say, any language, you can take 2,000 words and be functionally, conversationally fluent. And you can identify the highest frequency words. You could also take even something as complex as learning to, say, read and write Japanese and narrow it down to the common use characters, which is around 1900-something, I believe. And then from there, say, well, let's, let's, let's break it down even further. Almost all of those characters are formed by, say, 100 to 120 radicals. Okay? And that's what you would focus on. So the, the what 20% deliver 80% of the results that I'm looking for. And next you have sequencing. And sequencing, I think, is the most neglected, perhaps. What is a logical progression? in which to lay out the Lego blocks that I've selected, those 20%. And you, you, can, you can figure out pretty quickly that if you ask, for instance, what if we did the opposite for 48 hours, just as a testing approach, that you can unearth some real gems. So when I learned, for instance, to dance tango in Argentina, uh, partially because I was forced to, I had a female teacher who was very, very high level, I learned the female role, the follow, before I learned the lead. And it ended up being a, a key reason why I was able, able to compete in the world championships six months later, is that I learned the female role first, which was very odd. Also, if you talk to, say, a friend of mine, Josh Waitskin, who is the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer, he, he is the kid. Uh, when he learned to play chess, when he had his first real coach, they took all the pieces off the board. They didn't start with openings which everyone does, and you memorize basically the answers in the, the teacher's book, and you just learn all these openers. And instead of that, his teacher took all of the pieces off the board and put, uh, he had 
king and pawn. I'm sorry, yes, it was king versus king and pawn. And he reduced the complexity to focus on principles, really flexible principles instead of tactics that were memorized. Uh, so the sequencing is very, very critical. And the last piece you would think is very self-evident, but it's often not, and that is stakes. Not stakes, like flipping stakes on a barbecue, but consequences. How do you build in incentives and motivation, whether that's a reward or a punishment or both, so that you or other people will actually do what, uh, what the plan includes? So that could be the race cars. Right? That could be stakes. That could be an incentive. Uh, you could also say, uh, take any number of different uh, approaches. There are tools like stick, S-T-I-C-K-K.com, and others that you can use to uh, harness loss aversion to your advantage. So for instance, uh, if you want to lose weight, and there's another one called diet bet, you could take, and this is something a lot of people have done successfully, you could take, say, $100 or whatever amount is going to be painful for you to lose, put it into stick, it goes into escrow, and if you don't hit your goals, and other people verify this, then that gets contributed to your anti-charity. So an anti-charity is a nonprofit that you would rather nuke than give money to. So it could be the American Nazi party, it could be whatever it might be, and you'll be on the public record as having donated if you don't lose your 20 pounds in two months. So believe me, and uh, my, my, my friend Derek Sivers, who's an entrepreneur, has said, you know, if, if more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with perfect abs. So you just need incentives. Uh, so that's, that's the basic framework, and you can get into all the nuances and details, but that, that basic framework has helped me with all of the skills that I've tackled, I'd say, in the last decade, certainly. So speaking of the skills that you've tackled, let's, let's um, see how this framework works in action. Tell us about a particular skill that you've attained in an especially unorthodox way. Let's see, I'm trying to maybe omit the odd ones, like Japanese horseback archery. That would Turns be. out not a long career, uh, particularly in the US, if that's something you focus on. I'll, I'll come back to, I think, the swimming, because it, it had all of the ingredients for something that I would fail and did fail at for a very long time. The fear factor was very, very high. The shame factor was very, very high. And so the, the unorthodox approach that I took, well, just to give you actually back into it. So what are the results? The results were didn't swim, couldn't do two laps in a small pool until early 30s. 10 days later, after getting a book, I didn't even have video at this point, with total immersion, I was doing 20 to 40 laps per workout to relax. This is 10 days later. And I've had many, many friends duplicate this, many, many of my readers and listeners and so on. So unorthodox for me, because in retrospect, it seems so obvious. Yet, if you go into any pool uh, and have, say, the, the general staff teach you, they're, they're going to teach you very, very differently. So in this particular approach, A, remove as many failure points and fear areas as possible for the very beginning. So you want people to uh, get as much positive reinforcement early on as possible. In this case, I was in a four-foot deep pool kicking off the side. And I realized, wow, even without any strokes, without any kicking, I can cover, say, a third of the pool distance if I just get my body in the right position. Second, questioning assumptions, and this is something that 
that uh, Terry, who's the founder of Total Immersion, does very well, is that I had always tried to swim on top of the water. Well, body is dense, tends to sink. So assume that your body's gonna be 90, 95% underwater, and you actually think of it conceptually as swimming downhill. Isn't that odd? So by swimming downhill, your arm is actually angled down underneath the water, say, by three feet. Uh, the pressure on that arm helps to tilt your lower legs up and makes you more hydrodynamic. Okay, and you figure this all out by kicking off of the wall and then standing up. Kick off the wall, stand up. And, uh, and then I would say, secondly, is finding the exercise and this can be applied to any domain. What is the one exercise that makes all of the other exercises irrelevant or less important? And this, this is part of the sequencing. But what I realized in my own experimentation with it is that a hand-swapping drill in swimming, where you're basically trying to have your arm enter the water at the same time that your other arm is straight and then replace, it extends your, the, the period during which you are in your extended fuselage position. And if I just focused on that one exercise, hand swapping drill, everything else fell into place. Uh, and that was going from zero to uh, shortly thereafter, uh, because this was, we're gonna come back to incentives. Uh, about uh, eight months before, a friend and I had assigned each other New Year's resolutions. By the way, more effective than coming up with your own. And so my friend was, just completely addicted to double espressos, had like 12 a day, and I was like, okay, yours is nothing stronger than green tea for a year. And he's like, Damn. okay. And uh, he did it. Now, granted, he would pack like 12 days worth of green tea into a French press. <laughs> I don't know why I feel so sick. I'm like, I think I see your problem. But he stuck with it. And his, his assignment to me, after seeing me flail around in the water and get out at one point, he said, you need this as a life skill for yourself, for your kids, uh, you have to do a one kilometer open water, meaning in ocean or lake, probably swim by the end of the year. And I got to July, August, had, had failed every class effectively that I took and abandoned it until total immersion. And then I would say two weeks after uh, starting, I ended up doing a one mile, not a one kilometer, open water swim by myself in the ocean where I grew up in at this specific beach where I had one of my near drowning experiences. So that, that would be, I think, an example. And it's, it's an important example because it was a skill that I was deathly afraid of. And I think a lot of students end up in that position for many different reasons. Wow. So I feel like helping someone get over a near drowning experience is something that may not be totally safe for teachers to do with their <laughs> students. Um, but so, so I want to ask you, of all the experimentation and adventuring that you've done from ice baths to archery on horseback to you name it, which, which of those activities um, can kids try themselves? Wh which of the experiments you've, you've done, the adventures you've had, can a teacher assign to their students or help their students undertake? Yeah, I'll leave out the 10-day fasts and the muscle biopsies, <laughs> also probably not great for insurance policies at schools. I would suggest a competition of some type. And the one that comes to mind for me is how many foreign, vocab uh, foreign vocabulary words, so forget about grammar, forget about all that, but like how many vocab words can you memorize in a day? And uh, have a reward, have an inspiring reward. It doesn't take much. 
And I, I recall at one point, so keep in mind, you know, the kid who was bad at languages, who had done very poorly in Spanish, until I had Mr. Shimano, who's incredible, and the right environment. I then after that point have uh, often played this game with myself where I'll say, take Italian and became obsessed with mnemonic devices. So memory tricks like the, say the memory palace, which was used by Cicero or the link word mnemonic. Uh, there's a gentleman, I believe by the last name of Grunberg, who wrote a number of books that highlight how to use word association and image association, I should say, to memorize foreign vocabulary. So let's say you have Spanish vaca, right? V-A-C-A, vaca. Okay, so how would you learn, if you're a native English speaker, vaca, all right? And this is where I think you can engage a lot of kids. All right, well, imagine a cow with a vacuum head vacuuming up grass. All right, cow, vacuum head, vacuuming up grass. Okay, so like think about it, do that for 10 seconds. And you could probably teach a class where you do that at the beginning, the beginning of class, come back 30 minutes later, all right, so-and-so, what's the word for cow in Spanish? And they'll, they will remember it. And you can rem they might remember it a week later, just from that 15 seconds. And so you play this game of, of imagery and creating these associations. And I kid you not, you will probably, if you had a, a classroom of, say, 50 students, it depends on age, but you could very well have students who successfully remember a week later two to 300 vocabulary items from a single day. That would not surprise me at all. And keep in mind the sort of minimal effective dose if you want to be considered or perceived as conversationally fluent is probably around 2,000 words. Okay, so how many of us have heard it takes a lifetime to learn a language? I certainly was told that and I was like, lifetime? Screw that. <laughs> a lot of things I want to do. I don't want to commit to a lifetime of studying something just to be good at it. Oh, it's so depressing and demoralizing. But instead if I said, oh, all right, you just did 200 words in a day, two days, if you did that times 10, what is that, two weeks? You would have all the raw materials to be considered conversationally fluent in language. How encouraging is that? How exciting is that? And to position a language as, say, a second lens through which you can experience life, you're effectively doubling your lifespan. Okay. Wow. And you use all of the, t the tricks and tips that I'm sure many of these people in, the, in this room are familiar with, but context. Maybe some kids are into hip-hop. Maybe some kids are into comic books and manga like I was when I was in Japan. Utilize all of that. And I, th I think that would be an experiment that I would run because it's so easy to apply that disc framework to it and the, the, uh, the implications for each of those stages are so easily mapped to just a, a foreign vocabulary memorizing competition using mnemonic devices. So there, there are a lot of macro principles embedded in this one micro exercise, if that makes sense. So you're learning the macro from the micro. And the student doesn't have to know any of this. This is just a Trojan horse for kind of slipping it in there, just like Josh Waitzkin and his teacher taking the pieces off the board. So I feel like you arrive at so many of these tactics and, and breakthroughs like mnemonic devices by way of experimentation where you're often running an A-B test and doing more of what works, doing less of what doesn't work, always, always A-B testing. Have, has there ever been a time when you decided you needed to forget about the data, not run an A-B test, and just go on gut because you believed something in your heart and it felt inappropriate to run an A-B test? It's very rare, I'll be honest. Now, but the question allows me to 
maybe chat a little bit about how I think about the use of intuition because I do, I, I'm trying to increasingly use intuition. Intuition helps me to identify things that I would like to test, even if they seem ridiculous. So for instance, every time I've had a roommate in a foreign country where I'm using comic books to learn a language, I get ridiculed every single time. <laughs> They're like, wham, bow, smash, really? Like, that's what you're going to... And, and then three months later, they're a convert because they see I'm studying dialogue. That's why the comic books work. Same reason that scripts, if you can get translated scripts for movies, which you can very easily, work so well for language learning. Oh, wow. And uh, so I use intuition. Scripts from foreign films that you can then read while you're watching the or movie. Or scripts from, say, a movie that you know really well, whether that's uh, Die Hard, Babe, whatever, which are two real examples for me. I don't <laughs> Uh, uh, if you know those, as for the renegade duck. Uh, so uh, yeah, anyway, that's from Babe, not Die Hard. Uh, you could also look at, for instance, I would actually encourage people to take movies they know really well. Okay. I'm getting off track, but where it's you, a great technique. Where, I wanted you to draw yeah, it out. Where you have subtitles available in your target language, because if you do the, if you do the, if you do the inverse, uh, if you don't catch a word. Uh, Orally, you're not going to be able to look it up mm. or write it down. So I, I tend to use the opposite. But the point being, intuition is all, oftentimes just a, a proxy for interest. So if I'm really interested in something, that checks the box partially of the stakes and incentives, right? Um, so, so I use intuition in that case. I will very often, uh, for instance, uh, use my intuition, even if I split test. And I've done this a lot, uh, say, for book covers, even book titles. So I tested the four-hour work week uh, alongside 12 other titles and subtitles in Google AdWords. It was just the ad headline and the ad text. And then I looked at the max click-through, which one had the best click-through a week later. It cost a few hundred dollars, and I knew exactly which title and subtitle would perform the best. That's how we came up with the title. However, when I looked at the top, say, three results for the book title, I had to ask, which of these can I live with? Which of these will I be happy with? Because once this genie's out of the bottle, I have to live with this forever. <laughs> and so for better or for worse, I'm the four-hour guy for the rest of my life. Uh, but I knew I could live with the title. And so I have vetoed, I have vetoed best performing outcomes when I split test mm. uh, if I feel strongly that I'm more interested in or will live more soundly, sleep more soundly with number two or number three. Yeah. So I've been listening to your podcast of late, especially getting ready for this conversation. But even before that, you have these incredible interviewees, who, both bold-faced names and people that um, I'd never heard about before who proved to be fascinating. Um, which, of all the people, of all the incredible people that you've interviewed, whom would you nominate to design the ideal school? Okay, I'm gonna answer that. The first uh, recommendation I wanna make is just backtrack for a second. Everyone should read, uh, there's a book called Bad Science by Ben Goldacre, just on the subject of data and split testing and statistics. Most say science, and it could be split testing, that is represented in media is misreported. And it's, it's extremely critical has never been more critical, I would say, to be scientifically literate. <laughs> so uh, bad science covers how to become a more uh, just intelligent and astute reader of, of science and results. So you can be uh, 
very strategically and uh, importantly uh, literate in that sense. So I would read that A, but which would inform, in fact, how you design a school. Because a lot of it, I think tracking is very important. I think experimentation is very important. The, when it comes to mastery, uh, it, no one in my mind pops up more often than Josh Waitzkin. So Josh Waitzkin has a foundation. He has uh, taken his learning framework for chess, and he's considered a prodigy, but I think it's a, it's a misnomer. because Give like a two-sentence bio on Josh Waitzkin. Yeah, Josh, so Josh is the little kid in the Oshkosh overalls who ends up uh, playing speed chess against the hustlers in Washington Square Park and searching for Bobby Fischer, dominating. <laughs> so there are some God-given talents, uh, certainly in Josh. Uh, and then going on to compete very, very, very successfully. And there was a book and a movie based on his life. Uh, he, but he has since taken his ability to deconstruct something like chess, applied it to Tai Chi push hands to become a world champion. He applied it to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to become the first black belt under Marcelo Garcia, who is considered the GOT, or GOAT, GOAT, excuse me, the greatest of all time. Uh, he's like the Mike Tyson, uh, Wayne Gretzky, Mickey Mantle combined in the world of grappling. And he, he, so you could look at something called MG in action, and you might think this would never apply to anything else, but MG is Marcelo Garcia in action. So he's taken different starting positions, transitions, and finishing positions and created a, uh, effectively a, a database where you can look up any possible combination to learn more effectively. And uh, Josh has thought very deeply about the importance of, say, single tasking, focus, and also skills that enable you to learn other skills. Right? So that lead domino, in other words, that we discussed a little bit earlier, which is which of these will make everything else easier or irrelevant or less important, and sequencing things in the right fashion. So I'd say Josh Waitzkin. So imagine you're hired as a teacher at Josh Waitzkin's school. What subject do you teach? I would teach... What would I teach? Uh, either, and I would call it something sexier, meta-learning. So how do you learn to learn? Okay, This is not something that's very often explicitly taught. And I would say, all right, let's, we're going to cover the toolkit that you can apply to all of your other classes. Let's what, practice that. What is um, a lesson you teach on, on one particular day as uh, the teacher of meta-learning at Josh Waitzkin's ideal school? Well, the first, the first class, and it depends a lot on grade level, but I think the first class would just be all demos. So what, can, what will get the attention of these kids and hold their attention so that I am credible but also maybe aspirational in some sense, which Mr. Buxton was. Right? I mean, Mr. Buxton could kick your ass. He was a tough man and he could still go into the weight room and demolish the students so there was an incredible amount of respect awe aspiration there are a lot of magic ingredients that are not so magic you can you can you can tease them out and deconstruct them so i think the first class would really be all demos so let's say go around the room memorize kids names have them go out come back in sit in different seats remember all their names right maybe memorize like uh, memorize have them shout out random numbers memorize a string of, say, 50 digits like that, and then turn around and give it to them. I'd be like, oh, and you give it to them backwards on purpose. They're like, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. And be like, no, 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 keep going. And they're like, what? 
things like that. So the first class would just be demo, credibility, this is somebody whose second class you want to come to. Uh, and then I think right away I would take somebody in the class who doesn't, you know, who in this class thinks they can't do this? A bunch of, a bunch of arms club. And I'd pick one kid who looks the most fearful and then convert them right in front of the class, boom, just like that. And uh, make them a hero in the class briefly. And but then, but then, I mean, but then, then crush, shoot them down. Then crush their spirit. No. Yeah. Who do you think you are? No, I would not do that. That's where the soap comes in. Yeah, bad table. Uh, and uh, that's, I think, the critical, that, that groundwork is so, so, so important. You need the patient to be willing to take the medicine. You need the patient to be willing to take the medicine. So that, that would be step one. I want to be in that class uh, myself as, <laughs> as a teenager. Uh, you were talking about Mr. Buxton and his ability to hold a room and, and kind of the awe that uh, we had for him. Of those people you've interviewed on your podcast, uh, if Josh Weitzkin could design the ideal school, which of your podcast interviewees would be the virtuoso classroom teacher? Which of your interviewees do you imagine just holding a room of 25 rambunctious 10th graders, and how come? <laughs> rambunctious 10th graders, oof, 10th graders, okay. Yeah, 10th graders, tough. I, uh, I would say... I mean, Jamie Foxx probably would, just by virtue of being Jamie Foxx, but... <laughs> 10th grade, the first person who comes to mind, and I want to give a couple of other answers, Jocko Willink. Retired Navy SEAL commander. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be tougher? Be tougher. Like, and he's 230 pounds and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt. Like, everyone's going to behave. They will be at attention. So I think Jocko definitely, uh, in terms of getting kids to behave, he'll get 100% on his test. But uh, I'll give two others real quick Maria Popova, who runs brain, picking, uh, brain pickings is a phenom and she is very good in a world of listicles where everyone's trying to out BuzzFeed BuzzFeed and BuzzFeed's great at what they do. I don't think you should compete against them. She can make potentially dense literature very, very popular and philosophy very, very popular. She is a long form writer, does not compromise, does not dumb her material down and yet she built a private, I think it was a private newsletter that went out to five of her friends up to now probably more than 10 million people a month. That's really impressive to me. She's also better at writing in English, which is her second language than I am, which is, involves some shame on my part. But last I would say, and I really encourage everyone to check uh, this guy out, uh, BJ Miller. BJ Miller is a palliative care physician. He's a young guy. He's helped more than a thousand people to die. And he also suffered a horrible uh, electrocution accident in college, actually at Princeton, where I went undergrad. He was a, 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 uh, a warning to all of us coming into Princeton. He lost three of his limbs, so he's a triple amputee. And I think his perspective on life and fulfillment and achievement and the, the balance thereof is, is incredible. And he, he just has this uncanny ability to sit down and just immediately look into someone's sort of soul and their wants and desires and fears and read it. I, I've, I've really 
never encountered anything quite like it. So I think BJ would be a life-changing teacher. Wow. I want to switch gears just for a second, recognizing that any number of people in the room are ed tech entrepreneurs. Um, how do you feel, how has technology accelerated and, and enriched the pursuit of learning? How has technology uh, uh, hindered the pursuit of learning? Well, I think as with, as with uh, any, well, I should say technology, whether it's an app on an iPhone or a stick that <laughs> a chimp is using to fish out ants, it's, it's a tool that helps you to solve, in an ideal case, that helps you to solve some type of prevalent problem. And uh, technology makes a wonderful tool. It makes a terrible master. So I think that any time technology ends up in the driver's seat in determining your behavior, there are a lot of risks and a lot of problems. So how does it help? There is a lot that can be automated. And uh, whether it's machine learning or some form of deep learning, there, there are many ways technology can aid the learning process. Uh, so I was one of the first investors in a company called Duolingo, which now has 100 million users. It's the largest free language learning platform in the world, and uh, they have a lot more coming. Uh, it's incredibly powerful. And it, is, it, it was the byproduct of a, a number of founders, but one of, uh, one of those founders, uh, Luis Van An from Guatemala, originally, uh, created CAPTCHAs and recaptchas. So if you ever have to type in a bunch of weird characters to prove you're not a robot on a website, you have him to thank for it. Uh, but he used that. You might have noticed back in the day there were two fields. And you'd fill one in. The, the, the program knew the answer to that. That's how it would confirm that you weren't a robot. And then the second was taken from books that, they, that machines couldn't transcribe accurately. So you're actually, uh, he was harnessing millions and millions and millions of people to transcribe books effectively so that people, so that the blind uh, could use them so that anyone could search them, et cetera. And he's applied that to language learning in some really fascinating ways. Uh, and there are many, many examples like that. In terms of hindering, I would just, I would say that we live in a digital world where the economics of many of these businesses are dependent on distracting you as much as possible. <laughs> so if you go on Facebook and you're like, all right, I just need to get, check a direct message from a friend to figure out what I'm going to be doing on Tuesday. And then two hours later, you're like, why am I watching an orangutan video? <laughs> What happened? What did I just time travel? <laughs> and uh, the 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 business models are predicated on being able to distract you effectively, and they are very 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 good at it. They're putting billions of dollars, probably collectively trillions of dollars, into discovering new and better ways to distract you off of your chosen task. Uh, so I think that uh, technology can be exceptionally damaging. In, not just as it relates to learning, but I'm sure in, in a bunch of cognitive capacities. And actually, The Distracted Mind, written by a friend of mine, Adam Gazelli, who's a neuroscience PhD, runs a lab at UCSF, is worth checking out to see the, uh, some of the consequences of that. Uh, but I'd say, broadly speaking, uh, distraction. And conversely, if you, can, if you can teach yourself and your students to single task, not multitask, to single task more effectively, that ability, which used to be par for the course, is becoming a superpower. 
So if you can establish ways of blocking uh, or blocking out distraction-rich technology for even short periods of time, <laughs> you have a huge competitive advantage. Let's go back a couple thousand years when distraction-rich technology you know, was, was just a, a, a non-issue. This is, this is a question of, uh, I'm just thinking of right now. Could you give us a, a, a one-minute primer on Stoic philosophy and then riff on um, how you think Stoic philosophy could or, or should uh, inform our public school system? I'm really glad you brought this up because Stoicism, I think, is the one of the best operating systems for thriving in high-stress environments. And you want to prepare yourself and students for that. So I was going to say, why well, I hesitated when I brought up the meta-learning classes, the other option would have been Stoicism. But it would have been a class uh, about, <laughs> and I can't call it planned suffering, but <laughs> in effect, the more you schedule and practice suffering, the less unplanned suffering will disrupt your life. And so Stoicism, if we go back to, say, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, is really very similar to Zen in, in many, many ways. But it is a practical set of beliefs, frameworks, and exercises that allow you to inoculate yourself against fear of the unknown, fear of worst-case scenarios, to become less emotionally reactive, which is by, why Stoicism, I mean, certainly you can look at George Washington, Thomas Jefferson had Seneca on his bedside table. Uh, I think Bill Clinton reads uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius every year. Uh, but if you want to look at, at some additional contemporary examples, it's been, become hugely popular in Silicon Valley. It's become hugely popular in the NFL, including the, the past of uh, the Super Bowl winners, past two Super Bowls, uh, because it it teaches you how to view obstacles as opportunities and how to become less emotionally reactive. So you're effectively putting the serenity prayer into practice, where you are learning to separate the things you can control from the things you cannot control and to only focus on the former and to develop the courage and the ability to act. Uh, so what might that look like in a classroom? Well, <clears throat> I was chatting with Phil Zimbardo the episode hasn't come out yet for the podcast. Phil's, professor Zimbardo is a professor emeritus at Stanford, where he designed the Stanford Prison Experiment, which people might be familiar with, and many others. So he's, he's very good at explaining how good people can be turned evil and, how, and vice versa, how you can determine how people behave based on conditions. And so he has an exercise he calls, for instance, deviant for a day. And <laughs> hold on. I know this is family programming. I'm getting to the point. He puts a, a black square using a, say, erasable marker, not a Sharpie, uh, on, encourages kids, uh, students to do this and then walk around for a day. And so despite the ridicule, despite people trying to rub it off, to wear this black mark on your forehead for a day and to see how much social pressure affects your emotional responses. Okay. Uh, there are other ways that you could implement this. Uh, so Cato, who was considered the perfect Stoic by Seneca, would wear, I think it was a tunic of an odd color, so that he would deliberately get ridiculed by others. So he would learn to be ashamed of only those things worth being ashamed of. So right now, I think in the hypersensitive, politically correct environment in which we live, the only way serious 
problems are going to be solved is if we have very uncomfortable conversations. And right now, people are too afraid of being labeled, called out, whatever it might be, ostracized to have those uncomfortable conversations. So you can train yourself to be more comfortable with discomfort by planning it. So I have these pants, I call them my party pants. They're hideous. They look like the upholstery from, say, my grandmother's couch. I mean, they're terrible. And I'll wear them around in environments where I know I'm going to get heckled. Uh, and there, there are many such exercises that you can make fun. You can do comfort challenges where it's like, okay, student X, I want you. We're going we're gonna, to uh, go to the gym because that's our next segue. And I want you to go in and we're not going to mention anything. You're just going to lay down on the floor around all these other students for 10 seconds. You're not going to explain what you're doing. You're just going to lay down on the floor. And to show them that you're going to be nervous, you're going to be afraid, and then nothing is going to happen. And so to really teach people how to pick apart and analyze their fears effectively. Uh, and you, you could organize an entire curriculum around that, uh, full of exercises that are fun, that will make your students more resilient and willing to take risks. Because when you teach them to define it, say, the way that I would define it, which is the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome, most things just aren't that risky at all. And I think that if you want to embolden them and encourage them to really be change makers, put a positive dent in the world, to become entrepreneurs, teachers, or otherwise, that, that, that's a, a toolkit that they can take with them for the rest of their lives. If you'd worn those party pants today, you could have had 3,000 people heckling you that's all true. at once, and it would have been- On the internet, and then it would get rebroadcast. It yeah. would have been great practice. Yeah. Um, okay, so speaking of people heckling you, I want to turn to uh, audience questions. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Before we, before we do that, um, you've been an incredible advocate of DonorsChoose.org for just about a decade now. Why have you been so good to our effort? There, there are a few very specific reasons. Uh, I'm not involved with many nonprofits. I apply the same filters to nonprofits as I do to for-profits. And I've been very fortunate in Silicon Valley to work with, as an advisor or investor, a lot of the fastest growing companies in the world. So been an early investor in Facebook, Twitter, Alibaba. Uh, I was pre-seed advisor to Uber. And uh, I support Donors Choose because A, you run it like a, a lean for-profit. And I think the criteria should be the same. Uh, B, it's the, the specificity and accountability. I don't like contributing or donating to causes that are nebulous. And in this case, I recognize that education and certain teachers and opportunities have played a huge, huge role in my life. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a half a dozen people I could name off the top of my head. Uh, to If I can level the playing field in very specific ways. So for instance, I want to find uh, projects where schools and teachers can't afford, say, headgear and wrestling mats for wrestling programs. OK, check. I can do that in very specific areas. I want to find, say, uh, projects where students are taking science projects home. All right, so you're encouraging students to actually work on hands-on projects in science on their own. Uh, that's very important. Well, I can get really, really, really granular, and you know this, but I've done flash funding for, say, Long Island, or for New Hampshire, or for some areas in the Bay Area where I live now. And the fact that you can target so specifically and then get feedback and look at the results so, so specifically. As someone who tracks everything, I just find that incredibly attractive. So those would be, I'd say, you know, and, and it applies to you know, whether you have $10 to apply to a single 
teacher in your hometown where you grew up, or a million or $10 million to deploy more widely to really, really change the entire national conversation and results you see from certain types of classrooms, uh, it's, it's a good startup. Thank you. So I'm betting on you guys. Don't screw it up. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, would you, would you um, take some questions that uh, have been upvoted? I think they might I will. Be I will. Your, I'm looking at some upvoted questions here as well as here. So we have redundancy in case my eyes go sideways. Uh, I think I have my good enough vision to look right here. Uh, the first question from Anonymous, oh, my favorite, is what is the number one skill you think our students need to learn today that we don't teach them enough? I would say it probably, above and beyond the meta-learning, is comfort with discomfort. I think that our kids are too infantilized. Our students are too infantilized. And going back to Mr. Buxton, Mr. Buxton was very supportive, but he was supportive at the right times and in the right way. If you got a good job, that was a nice double leg. For Mr. Buxton, that was an event. And he didn't dole it out all the time so that you became numb to it. He, had, he was very, very tough, and he, he forced you to do things you thought you could not do. And I remember one time, hopefully he's okay with me sharing this, but we were doing these horrible exercises. Uh, I thought they called like blood pits. They had some terrible nickname. And where we did these rotations in a small group and you just got, you, you received zero rest. And I, and I remember telling Mr. Buxton, I walked over and I said, Mr. Buxton, I think I'm gonna vomit. And he goes, no problem. Bucket's right there, go vomit, and then come back because you're up next. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> please save me. And lo and behold, I came out of that practice and I had done two, three times what I thought I was capable of doing. So that, that type of toughness, I think, is important in training that toughness. And ability to be resilient in the face of criticism and ridicule is a prerequisite if you want people to then use what you would give them in the meta-learning. Does that make sense? So helping kids to become more comfortable with discomfort and, and dissect their own fears and overcome them which you can sometimes demonstrate very quickly in the cases of, say, language learning, so that you can then give them the meta-learning, uh, I think would be my approach. All right, so next uh, question. Uh, what things do you think a person cannot or should not learn rapidly? Nothing that comes to mind. I just haven't run into anything. There, with any given skill, even if it takes 10 years or 20 years, there is... I think everyone can agree there is a dumber way to go about doing it and a smarter way to go about doing it. There's a spectrum. You want to be on the smarter side, which is going to be faster. Next one is from Jeremy Shore. What sub $100 purchase has most changed your life in the past six months? Well, this is the first that comes to mind. Uh, I would say it is a Marpac Dome white noise machine that I have in multiple locations <laughs> because it's so important to me. And uh, this is to help with sleep. It is effectively, it sounds like a fan inside a small device that is very, very useful for sleep. So that would be, I think sleep is a force multiplier for many, many other things. You know what, actually just on the prior question, because I actually also didn't catch AL framework. I don't know what that stands for yeah. either. But, but to the question about, um, if you want to just speak about how uh, some of the tools you've developed and systems of thinking you've developed can be used to address inequity in our public schools. Sure, uh, I, and, and, and I'll apologize to everyone in advance that 
you all probably know a lot more about this that environment than I do. I mean, I just I'm not an expert in 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 any uh, school administration or or curriculum. So I'll take a stab at it. But I think that if I were in charge of it, and let's make it micro, because I think you can learn a lot from case studies. If you gave me a class uh, room of, say, minorities or people who are considered to be victims of that inequity, whether it's uh, female students, uh, learning disabled students, you name it, right? Uh, I would give them the tools to perform as, as, as I, I, in, in the sense that I, I think you need to arm people with tools and training so that they believe in themselves and that they can demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can compete. And uh, there are many other inequities and problems that are not addressed by that. I'm sure there are plenty of systemic issues. Uh, I, I, I would have to try to tackle those one at a time, but I would say in general, uh, whether it's, uh, for instance, you know, another nonprofit that I'm involved with, QuestBridge, is very good at this. And I think they play something like half of the lowest income kids, which, by the way, includes, say, poor white kids in Appalachia and so on. It's not race specific, but people at an economic disadvantage into Ivy League schools. I think they placed about half last year. And they do that by, in part, making talented kids who are driven but who are at a severe disadvantage economically or in a social situation where they're not even encouraged to apply to college but could get a free ride to Harvard uh, to go to different programs that will enable them and give them these tools and give them the belief system that will allow them to make those choices. So that's my best attempt. Uh, but I apologize if that is a dissatisfying answer. As teachers, we talk about the difference between memorizing and really learning, internalizing. When does that transition happen for you in your framework? Okay. So let's define, I think whenever we get into conversations, whether it's about super sensitive topics, say inequity, we didn't have time to get into it, but if we were having a bunch of wine and talking about this more, I would ask for a lot, I would ask a lot of questions before trying to answer that question. What are we talking about exactly? You know, what are the, where did it start? What are the ramifications? What are some examples? So really learning here, I will say really learning means that you have a firm grasp of principles that allow you to adapt to different environments, including high stress environments. To me, that would, that would mean you're an adept learner in X. Languages are a great case study for this, but I don't want to belabor the language learning because even teachers' eyes tend to glaze over if I talk about language learning too long. Uh, but I, I should also highlight, so when, does it, when does that transition happen? The transition happens, I think you really start learning very often, or you become an adept learner, again, to use definitions really clearly, when you get to a more intermediate level. You can't get to that intermediate level until you have a critical mass of the raw materials and building blocks so that you can start to create in novel combinations, whether that's swimming, whether that's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, whether that's uh, experimentation in the sciences, or anything else. Uh, so, so I would say don't, dis I, don't dismiss memorizing per se. I think that memorizing is actually really, really important because you do need to have a... Uh, you, need, you do need to consolidate the memory, the memories and practice of these, say, building blocks, 20% that gets you the 80%, the 1,000 most important words before you can start to get fancy and improvise and become an adept learner. Uh, so uh, 
I would say you're learning, meaning you're absorbing from the very get-go, from minute one of day one of the framework that I laid out, but you don't become an adept learner in the adaptable sense until you start getting into more of an intermediate phase, which does not mean two years later. That could be two weeks later for a lot of skills. Could be two hours later. Just depends on the subject matter. Okay, uh, this is a great one. How do you recommend teachers address students who struggle with competition tasks due to anxiety or learning disabilities? Uh, this is a really, 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 really important question. And just in my personal opinion, and I, by the way, I don't view myself as a writer or a podcaster or investor. I view myself first and foremost as a teacher. I'm not the best writer. I don't think I'm Tolstoy. <laughs> I think we could probably all agree on that. Uh, I do, however, write all of my books to make the complex simple. So I think about it as a teacher. And the way that I've experienced tackling this question, how do you address students, including my readers, listeners, and so on, who struggle with competition, tasks due to anxiety, anxiety or learning disabilities. So I've, I've dealt with thousands and tens of thousands of people who fall in both categories. The way that you deal with that is not by protecting them from competition tasks. The way that you, I think, address that is by dosing them, starting off very, very lightly and titrating up with larger and more intimidating tasks to make it less scary. And uh, I'm going to keep it at that. I think a lot of it is just operant and classical conditioning. So teaching myself how to change my own behavior, looking at BJ Fogg out of Stanford, ultimately it all comes back to a lot of this stuff. So. Uh, I, I do think that you can learn a lot about training yourself. I learned a lot about changing my own behavior when I was training Molly, my puppy, <laughs> reading a book called Don't Shoot the Dog. All right? And um, it's fantastic, by the way. It's really, really good. Uh, but I would say that you need, to, you need to dose people who are afraid of something with that something, just like Iocane Powder and The Princess Bride, if you guys get that reference, and then titrate up from there. That, that is, I think, how you help people with that. Uh, in the same way that something like Toastmasters helps you get over fear of stage fright. You don't, you don't help someone with that by having them think their way out of it. It doesn't work. You get them on stage day one. And if you want to do stand-up comedy, I've asked a number of uh, professional stand-up uh, comedians on my po podcast, because that is my biggest fear in the world, is getting on stage trying to make people laugh. Forget about it. Uh, and they said, uh, if I asked them the question I asked many people, which is, if you had a million dollars on the line, you get a million dollars, you have eight weeks to prepare me for stand-up comedy, I have to have, say, 10 minutes of material. What would the curriculum look like in the first week? And they said, day one, I have you on stage, don't even care what your material is. You're not going to have any. I just want you to get comfortable on stage because it's going to terrify you. And they're like, 90% of it is just getting comfortable on stage. And the whole world is a stage, so you need to get students comfortable with it. I'm going to jump in with a final question, okay. and then we'll give folks back maybe one minute at least on their, on their days. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what legacy do you hope to leave in the field of education and learning? I really think about... I'd say two things. So one is I'm trying to create a benevolent army of learners who have an incredibly good toolkit that they can then impart to more people. Right? So a, a large group, millions of people who are, in effect, enabled super learners, not because they have any 
in a talent for it because they have a better toolkit who can then impart that and spread it and hand it on to other people. And I would say, if we're talking about inscription on a, on a gravestone, it would be you know, a teacher who wanted his students to always be better than he was. That's it. Well, if ever there was a, a benevolent army of learners, I think it's the, the community assembled right here. And, and I know I speak for Tim and myself in, in thanking each of you for the time you've spared to listen. And, and on behalf of uh, this benevolent army of learners, I want to thank you, Tim, for your insights and your tools and tricks. Thank Thanks you so much. Thank you, guys. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.